the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Jonathan Breutz. On July 30th, 1947, then-Congressman Nixon was selected by then-Speaker of the House Joe Martin to be one of the 19 members of a select committee headed by Congressman Christian Herter to make a trip to Europe and prepare a report in connection with the post-war foreign aid plan the Secretary of State George Marshall unveiled at Harvard University in June of that year. Quote, I learned a great deal from the Herter Committee trip that Nixon later recalled. I had taken a poll and found that 75% of my constituents in the 12th district were absolutely opposed to any foreign aid. This is the first time I had experienced the classical dilemma so eloquently described by Edmund Burke that is faced at one time or another by almost any elected official in a democracy. How much should his voters register his constituents' opinions, and how much should they resent his own views and convictions? After what I had seen and learned in Europe, I believed so strongly in the necessity of extending economic aid that I had felt I had no choice but to vote my conscience and then try my hardest to convince my constituents. Here with us to talk about this topic is Ben Steele. Dr. Ben Steele is a senior fellow and director of international economics at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. He is also the founding editor of International Finance, a scholarly economics journal, lead writer of the Council's Geographics Economics blog, and creator of three web-based interactives tracking sovereign risk, global monetary policy, and central banking currency swaps. Prior to his joining the Council in 1999, he was director of the International Economics Program at the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London. His his previous book, The Battle of Bretton Woods, John Maynard Keynes, Harry Dexter White, and the Making of a New World Order was called, quote, A Triumph of Economic and Diplomatic History by the Financial Times. His new book, which he'll discuss today, is called The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. The Cold War historian John Lewis Gaddis calls the book, quote, An Outstanding and Certainly Timely Accomplishment. And former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan says this book will open eyes and minds. Dr. Ben Steele, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Just to start off, why did you why did you decide to write this book? Well, I decided to write this book when I was coming to the end of writing my previous book, The Battle of Bretton Woods. What really struck me about um, the the cameo appearance of the Marshall Plan late in that book was that um, in many ways the philosophy behind the Marshall Plan was a complete repudiation of the philosophy I had been writing about in the previous 300 pages. Um, That is, the Truman administration in 1947 made um, a a reluctant but determined decision uh, to abandon FDR's one-world vision of the post-war world in which the United States and the Soviet Union would cooperate through new multilateral institutions like the United Nations and the IMF. State Department official and um, Soviet apologist Chip Bolin um, wrote um, a a widely cited memo in 1947 saying that um, uh, foreign policy now in the United States needed to be devised around the concept of two worlds rather than one world. That is a democratic capitalist world led by the United States and a communist authoritarian world led by the Soviet Union. So this was, this was a really radical break. Um, and I thought the story needed to be told um, better than it had been in the past as a real Cold War story, which it is. The focus here is Europe. Can you give us an overview of the devastation of Europe following the World War II, especially in uh, economic terms? Well, as President um, later President Nixon uh, observed when he went to um, uh, Italy on his fact-finding mission in September of 1947, it, it wasn't just the physical destruction um, that he and his colleagues witnessed that impressed him. 
um, uh, but the the po political ramifications and the um, deeper uh, economic unraveling um, that was going on in in Europe, the traditional division of labor in Europe, say between um, the the country and the city, uh, between the agricultural sector and the manufacturing sector, all this had broken down. Um, firms that were very important before the war had been taken over or destroyed. Really, the an, an entire complex economic fabric of Western Europe was no longer operating. And the United States was really desperate at this time to try to reestablish it as quickly as possible so that Western Europe could stand on its own two feet, resist Soviet temptation, resist the temptation of a Soviet subversion, resist the temptation of local communist parties who were very powerful um, uh, in Italy and France, and allow the United States to continue to withdraw its troops from Europe and not have to rely on the military to protect its political and economic interests in Europe. Before, before the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, U.S. attitudes were mixed about engaging in the war. Um, yes. held, holding to the mantra, you know, the United, the, the United States shouldn't be going um, to search for monsters to destroy. What, what were the attitudes by, uh, by war's end in the country? Um, uh, Dean Atchison described it very well. The, the attitude was uh, bring, bring the boys home and don't play Santa Claus. Um, we had just fought two world wars that had started in Europe in the um, uh, course of um, 25 years. Um, and the public was really determined um, that the troops be brought home and that we should not be dragged back into um, European conflicts. So in many ways, the, the Marshall Plan was an attempt to uh, accommodate this very real um, feeling. Um, uh, by continuing to withdraw troops from Europe, but still uh, ensuring that the Europeans understood that we weren't disengaging um, from Europe. This is one of the reasons, for example, why the Marshall Plan um, was not a, a one-and-done, here's a lump sum of money and now we're going home, but it was a four-year program to show the Europeans that this, this wasn't just about um, uh, assistance from the United States. Um, uh, this was about a long-term commitment of the United States to the uh, firm establishment of democratic capitalism in Western Europe. The architect of the Marshall Plan, for which it was named after Secretary of State George Marshall, um, could you provide us with, with us with some context of his background and his rise to uh, this position during the um, during the post-war. Well, uh, Marshall had wanted to retire after the the war. He was um, offered up to a half a million dollars, which was an enormous sum of money at the time, to write his memoirs. But uh, President Truman uh, called him quickly out of retirement and asked him to go to China to try to broker peace between the nationalists and the communists. Um, this was a, a deeply frustrating uh, experience um, from Marshall. Of course, he, he was unsuccessful. Uh, but when he, he came home at the behest of Truman to become his secretary of state, I think Marshall learned a very important lesson, um, that you can't always uh, achieve the compromises uh, you want with your interlocutors, but you absolutely need a plan B. 
And when Marshall went off uh, for six weeks of negotiations with Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov and Soviet leader Joseph Stalin in March of 1947 to try to reach an understanding uh, about ending the occupation in Germany and reunifying the country, he was very prepared, if he had to, uh, to walk away um, and pursue American interests unilaterally, that is, outside the framework for U.S.-Soviet cooperation that had been established at Yalta and Potsdam. Um, and the disagreements between Washington and Moscow proved to be uh, unbridgeable. There was first the narrow issue of reparations. The Soviets were demanding $10 billion in reparations from Western Germany. This is over $100 billion in, in current money. Um, the United States said that that was absolutely impossible because Western Germany was not self-sustaining. So reparations like that would have to effectively be paid by the United States uh, um, uh, for Germany. Uh, the United States had made that error after World War I and was determined not to repeat it. But there was a much larger um, geostrategic difference between the two, and that is neither could afford for a unified Germany becoming an ally of the other. You had mentioned the Russians, um, Moscow. The subtitle of the book is Dawn of the Cold War. Um, what was what was the um, Soviet standpoint in terms of um, did they were they looking to have any sort of economic influence um, over Europe vis-a-vis -vis what the United States was doing with the Marshall Plan? Well, certainly they were determined to cement their con control over um, uh, Eastern Europe. Um, and they were determined to make sure that the United States did not control Germany, um, including even the, the Western part. Stalin had a vision, I wouldn't call it quite a plan, um, to spread Soviet influence in, in Western Germany by using uh, some sort of contrived plebiscite um, to go forward with um, uh, a, a communist uh, regime. Um, the United States was by this time becoming very pragmatic about um, the um, geopolitical boundaries um, uh, on the continent of Europe. Uh, it accepted that um, uh, certain countries were now effectively beyond saving, countries that they had hoped to keep in the Western bloc, such as uh, Poland and Czechoslovakia. But the United States was absolutely determined to make sure that the part of Germany that it and its French and British allies controlled did not fall under Soviet domination. Uh, you had mentioned earlier about um, the uh, use of military uh, by the United States to contain the communists. That there's always this sort of um, this trade-off. On the one sense, there's concern about containing the threat, but also the cost of containing it uh, militarily throughout the world, uh, which would play in play right into the hands of the uh, Soviet Union at the time. What sort of inter-administration debate was going on uh, within the Truman administration on how to, how to contain um, the threat of communism? There was a growing consensus um, that um, some form of uh, containment, you know, that, that term had been coined by George Kennan in 1947 in his famous foreign affairs article, 
um, uh, had to be implemented to stop the Soviets from um, a- expanding their, their reach. In 1946, the Soviets had pressed territorial claims in Iran and Turkey. Um, they refused to remove their troops, which were occupying northern Iran. These are troops that had been stationed there under treaty um, uh, during the war, and they only backed down when Truman sent a large military flotilla um, to the region. So that was the first clear warning shot to the Truman administration that the Soviets were not going to be content with the territory that they uh, occupied and controlled after the Second World War. Um, there were some, uh, like Eisenhower, who actually thought that uh, uh, American um, economic and uh, military aid should extend um, well beyond uh, Europe. And in the first instance, uh, Marshall and Acheson made the the decision that it needed to be concentrated um, uh, in Europe because that was the um, area uh, where the threat was most imminent. Could you take us through the process of how Secretary the Secretary of State Marshall uh, devised uh, his foreign aid plan, and uh, how, how did it how did it come how did the final product come to fruition? Well, the basic ideas behind the Marshall Plan um, had been uh, percolating already in 1946, and interestingly enough, they they didn't come from economists; they came from the military. We're talking about people like. Um, former Secretary of War Henry Stimson, um, Army Secretary Kenneth Royal, uh, Navy Secretary and later Defense Secretary James Forrestal. Um, They were all persuaded um, that the United States could not endure politically uh, a lengthy and uh, expensive occupation in Europe and that they needed to find uh, other tools of securing America's uh, influence um, in Europe. Um, and it's important to understand that in 1947, the United States dominated the globe, not just militarily, but economically, like never before and never since. It accounted for about uh, half of world manufacturing output. And the decision was made that we should try to um, leverage um, not just our economic might, but what's now called our soft power, uh, the influence of our ideas around the world, um, our uh, championing of democracy, of individual, uh, individual liberty, um, of free enterprise, and use these things um, as a way of creating uh, alliances uh, that would endure not just over the course of a period in which we were dispersing aid, but endure over decades. He unveiled it, Marshall unveiled the plan in June of 1947 at Harvard University. What did he hope to communicate to his audience? It's interesting that uh, his uh, deputy, Dean Acheson, uh, wanted him to make a much more high-profile speech at a much more high-profile venue. But it was Marshall's decision um, uh, to keep the, the venue modest and cerebral, Harvard University, to keep the speech short, um, to keep the speech um, uh, rather vague, to put ideas out there 
for several reasons. First of all, he wanted the ideas to, to germinate. He didn't want an instant reaction because he didn't want to spook the Republican Congress. Uh, but also he wanted to make clear to the Europeans um, that um, it was their burden uh, to come up with a compelling plan uh, for integrating their economies and uh, cooperating um, on a combined pan-Western European solution. Um, the most important part of Marshall's address, I think, was making clear that uh, the offer of aid from the United States was open to everybody. Um, and though, although we didn't mention the country by name, that included the Soviet Union, um, but that the United States would not tolerate any sort of obstruction from any country in the recovery of Europe. Uh, the State Department was determined that the Soviets bear the responsibility of splitting Europe by rejecting the Marshall Plan. Um, and this was uh, part of the geostrategic genius of, of George Kennan to devise this strategy of uh, coaxing Stalin into um, rejecting the plan and taking responsibility for truly erecting this Iron Curtain. How was the speech received both uh, domestically and abroad? Domestically, there was very little reaction initially. The newspaper headlines the next day were, were pretty dull. The New York Times, for example, just um, uh, titled its piece, uh, Marshall calls for European unity. It's extremely vague, um, which didn't disappoint Marshall. As I said, he wanted the um, uh, ideas to percolate over time. Uh, but Atchison had taken some precautions to make sure that the speech would not be ignored in Europe. Uh, right before the address, he called in a group of British newsmen, uh, told them that uh, Marshall's forthcoming speech would be extremely important, um, and, and no matter what the time of night, um, they were to quote-unquote wake up Ernie, that is Ernest Devon, the British foreign minister, to make sure that um, he ran with the ball. And Bevan certainly got the message. Uh, he immediately cabled back that um, uh, he was taking the initiative, uh, going to Paris to meet with his French counterpart, Georges Bideau. Um, thereafter, they coordinated carefully uh, with the State Department uh, to in invite Molotov and uh, to develop a strategy um, for coaxing him to both come to Paris for discussions, but then to, to walk out. And indeed, that's precisely what happened. Now, this was a $13 billion plan. In today's dollars, this is um, about $140 billion. Um, how did Congress uh, react to such a foreign aid plan? It's actually bigger than that in a, a contemporary context because as a percentage of U.S. output, we're, we're talking about 1.1% um, annually over four years. So we're talking about in current dollars, um, uh, an equivalent Marshall Plan would be $800 billion. Um, As you can imagine, the um, Republican Congress was uh, none too enamored of the idea of uh, a new massive foreign aid plan. 
um, the aid that had already been distributed over the previous um, uh, two years through UNRWA, the, the UN Relief uh, Agency, had been considered um, uh, wasted. Uh, Congress uh, wanted to cut uh, taxes and enjoy its peace dividend. So this was clearly going to be a, a tough sell. Uh, the man who um, took the uh, primary role of selling it to the Republican Congress is a remarkable figure, Senator uh, Arthur Vandenberg, um, a one-time isolationist um, who was uh, chairman of uh, the Republican-led Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he coordinated very, very carefully um, with Marshall. Um, what we do notice when we get into September of 47 and the legislative debate begins um, is a, a, a toughening of the anti-communist and anti-Soviet rhetoric. That is, uh, Vandenberg persuaded Marshall that in order to get this through Congress, um, it had to be made clear um, that the primary objective of the Marshall Plan was to keep the Soviets out of Western Europe. Were there some initial criticisms of the plan? Oh, sure. Many Republicans thought that the Marshall Plan was communism itself. That is, it was um, meddling in free markets and was going to undermine the revival of free enterprise uh, in Europe. That was a, an extremely difficult sell. You talked about it at the outset, but one of the most important early initiatives was sending uh, hundreds of congressmen to Europe on fact-finding missions uh, between August of 47 and November. And many Republican congressmen, not just um, Richard Nixon, um, came back in pre in extremely impressed by what they saw and con very convinced um, that an initiative was like this was necessary to stop the spread of communism in Western Europe. They were particularly concerned in the short term of the possibility of the communists taking power in Italy in the forthcoming April 1948 elections. What was the ultimate effect of the Marshall, Marshall Plan? Did it effectively fit George Marshall's vision to rebuild Europe after the war and stave off, stave off communism? It did do that, but it didn't do that on its own. As I mentioned uh, at the outset, um, one of the primary ambitions of the Marshall Plan was to revive Europe, both economically and, as Kennan would put it, spiritually or, or politically, without having to rely on the uh, American military. In the end, uh, military guarantees were necessary. Um, Economic and political integration in Europe were a requirement of the State Department. Uh, in many ways, um, Will Clayton, the Undersecretary of Economic uh, uh, Affairs in the State Department, was one of the founding fathers of the European Union. Um, and the French, in particular, had to be dragged into this kicking and screaming. Um, the French um, objected to uh, the State Department's integration vision on the grounds that it would undermine their self-sufficiency. They said, for example, if we have to depend on Western Germany for our coal, what's going to happen, say, in five or 10 years' time 
um, if Germany uh, denies us coal, or the Soviets take over Germany and deny us coal. If we go down that route without any security guarantees from you, uh, businesses here will, will not invest. Um, we will not succeed um, in producing that rapid economic recovery that you're asking for. Um, so in April 1949, um, the French and the British successfully convinced the United States to provide credible uh, open security guarantees in the form of the creation of uh, NATO. Um, and uh, NATO proved to be a critical element behind the Marshall Plan. That is, the United States could not uh, escape the reality of needing to provide Western Europe, not just with economic security, but with physical security. Moving on to uh, concluding with the Marshall Plan's legacy, um, you even see 25, or about 20 years later during the, the Nixon era, a move, sort of a shift away from economic or physical, even economic security, at least a desire to do so uh, in Europe. Um, fast forward to today, the rhetoric from the current administration um, is not is not so, um, especially during the campaign, was not so um, supportive of of massive foreign aid plans. Do you ever see the U.S. Uh, ever again um, undertaking, given the current trajectory, a, a major project like this? It's difficult to see that in the current political environment. But Jonathan, I have to emphasize that it's it's perhaps even even worse than the, the way you portray it, because it's not, it's not financial aid that I think is critical to um, uh, maintaining uh, American economic and political influence uh, in the world. It's these deep multilateral political and economic alliances that we created after World War II that I think we need to sustain. As an example, uh, Will Clayton, who I mentioned um, uh, earlier, um, a critical State Department official um, and architect of the Marshall Plan, would be appalled by what he's seeing from the Trump administration. For example, um, the potential unraveling of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. Um, he would have um, noted um, that political relations between the United States and Mexico had improved immeasurably over the past quarter century because of NAFTA. Will Clayton always believed that good political relations followed from good economic relations. Um, so I think it's important to focus on, on this legacy um, uh, of the Marshall Plan that we produced these in enduring alliances after the Second World War that has allowed us to leverage our soft power uh, throughout the world. It is redounded to our benefit. And I think it's very important that we, we don't give these up, um, that we don't go down the route of um, trying to transform alliances into short-term transactions doing bilateral deals with, with nations as a, a, a means of um, uh, augmenting uh, our economic power. If we lose the power of our ideals throughout the world, 
um, and this belief throughout the world that the United States stands for higher universal values, uh, values beyond America first, I think we will be the losers from that. The book is The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. Ben Steele, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me.